Good morning, Gospel Hope. How are you? Good, good, good. So, hey, I'm excited to kind of open up this new series uh, for us, uh, Ecclesiology, as you see it on the screen. Uh, don't be freaked out by that word. Ecclesiology means the study of the church. So, ology, you probably picked up on that. But the word ecclesia is also in there, and the ecclesia literally means the called out ones. So, you may have picked up on that from the opening text where the Apostle Paul encouraged those to live uh, as though they were called, to live in a way that is consistent with their call. And so, we're going to explore today um, the nature of the church and exactly what is the nature of this thing that we call the church. Uh, as I get started, or before I get started, let's go before the Lord and ask for his help and then we'll, um, we'll dive in. Father, in the name of Jesus, um, your word is exactly that. It is yours. It is not mine. Um, it has intrinsic power that you gave it. And so as a result, oh God, we yield to it and ask that you would do whatever work through it you want to in our lives. We ask, oh God, that you would continue to unpack for us the reality of the church and do so, Lord God, in a way that gives you maximum glory but inspires us, Heavenly Father, to live worthy of this call and vocation. Um, move me completely out of the way. I declare, Lord God, my desperation for you and that, uh, Lord God, your people cannot be effectively served unless you show up. And that's what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. About 10 years or so um, ago, I was a part of a team at work that featured uh, someone uh, who was a Cape Meridian, uh, someone from Bogota, another person from Puerto Rico, and one from um, a Chile, one of the most important characters on that team, Chile. And, and one of the things that we would do is we would try to teach each other things when we would go out to lunch about our respective cultures. And one of the things that I uh, was amused by was kind of the global phenomenon of how words and phrases can take on new life in the culture larger than what I really believe they should. Uh, in particular, I was talking to Jose Valenzuela one day, the guy from Chile. Uh, oh, I didn't know that was going to do that. Um, and uh, we were talking about the word for refrigerator in Chile. And he speaks Spanish. And he says, well, the word for refrigerator there is frigidaire. And I said, well, wait a minute. That's a company that makes refrigerators. And he says, yeah, because the first time that we saw a refrigerator, it had frigidaire on the front. And that's what it did. And that's what it is. And therefore, it worked its way into the cultural vernacular that they've always referred to now as any refrigerator of any type as a frigidaire. I began to think about, there are some folks in this room who might recognize this. If you've been in the workplace for a, a minute or two, someone might say, would you Xerox these for me? Xerox is a company, but it's a term that is used for the first and foremost company that ever introduced these copier machines into the American workplace, but it worked its way into the culture as being the name for all copiers when that really doesn't fully express the term. How many of you of late have uh, been in a car that had power windows and you uh, leaned over to the person and you say, hey, would you roll down that window? When in reality, there is no rolling. That's a very manual function that hasn't been in play for over 20 odd years, unless you're buying cars that have a very basic package, which is no, no shade there. But, but, but when it comes to the rolling down of windows or Xeroxing copies or referring to a refrigerator as the Frigidaire or even as some might refer to it as an icebox, none of these uh, uh, language faux pas really create a real problem. But there is a place where I believe that we significantly disadvantage ourselves when we don't think through the language and we generically use terms. And one of those terms is the word church. 
In our current cultural vernacular, we all are guilty, myself, uh, uh, first and foremost, I am the, the largest of sinners in this regard, like, like, hey, what time are you coming to church? Or, uh, oh man, we had church today. Or are we taking all two or three cars to church? Like we often regularly refer to the church as what? This place where we come to worship when the reality is this is not the church. We are the church and not the building. And so my main point today that I really want to unpack in the scriptures is the church is not a building, but it is in fact an army, a body, and a family. Can you say that with me? The church is not a building, but it is is an army, a body, and a family. We're going to explore this reality today, and these are our basic three ideas as we talk about the nature of the church. So there's a passage of scripture that I'd love for us to go to, and it's right here in Matthew chapter 16. Many of us are familiar with this conversation between Christ and his disciples. As his ministry is starting to pick up popularity, he turns to the disciples and then says this, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, uh, and Jesus answered and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed uh, in heaven. And then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Interesting. So it is, here it is, Jesus, the one who invented the church, comes to us and tells us something about its nature. And one of the first aspects of its nature that we find here is that if he's going to build a church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, it sounds like the church is really functioning in a very military context, doesn't it? I believe it's a, effective for us to refer to the nature of the church as that of an army. Uh, take a look here uh, uh, up on the screen, because when we talk about armies, many of us recognize this. This is probably the silent drill team of the United States Marine Corps. But look at them. Is that not a beautiful display? Is that not awesome? If you've ever seen the, uh, any of our armed forces in, uh, in their full dress uh, uniforms, it is an awesome thing to behold, especially as they walk according to file and rank and in unison, especially the, the Marine Corps silent drill team. It is a beautiful display of precision and awesomeness. It's just a wonderful thing to behold. But I want you to understand that while this uh, pictured reality of the army is a beautiful thing, it is not the best reality of the army. In much the same regard, you and I as a church, what we're doing right now does not represent our best reality. You see, an army is not at its best when it is in parade, it is on its best when it is on mission. And this is one of the great realities of the church. It is, a, it, is a, it is a missional, it is a missional body. It is an army that is headed and commissioned by the Christ. And so oftentimes, I believe that we can get trapped in our pictured reality. In other words, we grow to define this right here as the apex, the high point, the sweet spot, the, the coup de grace of the church's function. And this is not it. 
This is literally like the Marine Corps looking back at me in full dress blues with all of their various medallions and awards being arrayed, white gloves and everything, rifles in hand, sitting with all of that beautiful, awesome potential. No, the best display of our national defense is when it is actively defending, when it is actually marching, when it is actually moving forward, not in a parade, but actually on a mission, advancing for us the kingdom of God. The church, in its truest nature, is not a building, but it is an army. Now, what are some of the things that armies share in common? Jesus kind of gives us some insight. Look back at the passage. It says here, now, when Jesus came into this region of Caesarea Philippi, he turned and asked his disciples a question, who do people say that I am? One of the distinctives of an army is that they have mutual conviction. Mutual conviction. You cannot be a part of an army, both in a practical sense, in a spiritual sense, or even in the ecclesiastical sense, if you do not share a shared conviction as to who you represent, whose you are, and what you came to do. It's one of the fundamentals. There is a shared conviction, a shared conviction around who Christ is. But there's not only a shared conviction, but then Jesus says that this church that he will build, he will build it on a particular foundation and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In other words, the church is advancing. A gate is a defensive structure, not an offensive structure, meaning that the church is on offense. We have a mission. And it is not kingdom defense, it is kingdom offense. We are advancing the gospel. We are at our best when we are on mission with shared mutual conviction, mutual mission. But before we can have truly, true, heartfelt, passionate, mutual conviction and mutual mission, we must have something else, and that is mutual doctrine. Because how can we advance if we're not on the same page as to what we are advancing and why we are advancing? And so Jesus takes care of that for us by looking back at the same passage, but drilling all the way down to verse 21. Now remember, after Jesus applauds Peter for giving the right answer to the theological pop quiz and begins to introduce them to the first doses of ecclesiology and saying, on this foundation, I will build my church. Then he turns from that point forward in verse 21, he says, from that time forward, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed on the third day and be raised. In other words, the the, the moment that Jesus introduces the mission of the church, he immediately begins to shave off some of the rough edges of the disciples so that they can see this isn't just marching orders to follow me, it is marching orders to advance the gospel. You see, he says, I am going to the cross. Now, what happened immediately after Jesus began to tell them and publicly show them how he must be crucified and must be taken and how he must die and how he must be raised from the dead, his very disciples, the very disciple who gave the right answer to the theology pop quiz, turns around and rebukes Jesus and says, nah, nah, you can't go to the cross, man. Isn't that interesting that it's easy to have the right answers but the wrong energy? 
It's easy to have the correct answers for the theology quiz. It's easy to be able to raise one hand in Sunday school or even to say amen during a Sunday service to know the right answers to the theological quiz, to be able to say amen in the right places during the, during the church moment of preaching. But when it comes to time to actually practice and push the gospel forward, there be some sense of opposition because it doesn't quite make sense to us. This is what Peter did close to the missional flames, but still doesn't fully understand the nature of the gospel. So it is crucial that we who are a part of God's army, the church, understand mutual conviction, mutual mission, but it must be built on a foundation of mutual doctrine. We must agree on what the gospel is. And so an army is at its best while it is on purpose and not on parade. I want to say that again. An army is at its best while on purpose and not on parade. I'm not undermining in no way. I'd be putting myself out of a job if I were undermining the, the beauty and the value of Sunday morning. But what I'm saying is this is not our finest hour. Our finest hour is found in the field when we have been loaded up with mutual conviction, mutual passion, mutual sense of mission, and mutual understanding of the doctrine of the gospel. It is then that we leave this place and we are ready to advance. That's when we are at our finest, when we have this beautiful balance between the training and the tactical objective. You gotta have both. And so, the church is not a building. But it is an army, it is also a body, and it is also a family. Take with, uh, with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans. The book of Romans. Paul's words here, specifically around the grace of God given us uh, in the occasion of spiritual gifts. And he says here in Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 3. For the grace of God is given to me, I say to everyone. Grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of him himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, have, uh, so we though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in, uh, in serving, uh, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, and the one who contributes in generosity, and to the one who leads with zeal, and to the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In this particular passage, we grow to appreciate quite clearly that the, the church is not a building, but it is an army and it is also a body. This body analogy is littered throughout the scripture, but there is something beautiful about the way the body is presented here that I want to share with you. If we could take a look at the screen behind me, I want you to see something. This is obviously, if you can see here, it's a, a, a batter hitting a, a home run. 
Uh, but this isn't a bragging moment on my son. Uh, but what this is, is a, a beautiful demonstration. Insert the child of your choice. This is a beautiful demonstration of what the Bible means by us being a body with members in particular, but all part of one body. You see, the distinctives that we see in the text, and keep the illustration up there, is that the body has this beautifully, uh, uh, divinely induced unity, diversity, and interdependency. Let me explain. If you look here, in order for that to happen, the eyes have to track the pitch and make a decision. Is it inside? Is it outside? Is it low? Is it high? How is it spinning? Is it a curveball? Is it a breaking ball? Is it a fastball? Where is it headed? The eyes participate. When the eyes make that decision, then something else is going on where the hands have to say, I'm going to wait and I'm going to wait on this one and hit it late or I'm going to hit it early if it's coming inside. When the hands make that decision, there's also something else going on where the wrists are saying, we can't roll over or we'll reduce our power. Then the rest of the body is saying, we got to sit back on this one and make sure that we don't hit the ball in the ground because we want it to have the right trajectory. Then the shoulders are making a statement. We want the bat to be as close to us at the, un, until the last possible moment. We want to drag through the zone so that we don't end up hitting a pop-up. And then the feet have a conversation, the legs, the knees, the entire body is participating in one single objective. How do we hit a home run? And there's not a single aspect of the body that is missing from the conversation, nor does it have a role, regardless of which aspect of the body you happen to be looking at. Regardless of which aspect of the body you happen to be looking at, regardless of who preaches the messages, regardless of who serves on the door, regardless of who gives with the greatest generosity, regardless of who sings in the choir, regardless of which part of the body you're looking at, regardless of who cooks the food, regardless of who's the most robust at evangelism, we are all designed to collectively come together and hit home runs for Jesus. We are a body. And there is this incredible unity that we have. There aren't just hands and head and feet up there. There is this unity. The body is participating together. But then there is also this incredible diversity. I mean, even down, if you just want to be bored and nerded out about this, there is even a particular way that the bat is being held. Rather than in the palms, it's being held in the fingers in order to maximize bat speed. All kinds of participation from even the smallest parts of the body is happening here. This is what we look like when we are serving at our best. You see, the most beautiful reality of the body of Christ is this. It's not at its best when it's in the mirror. It's at its best when it's in motion. When we are doing what we are called to do, when we are on mission, when we are in motion, and that motion often will drive us to a high level of unity. We have to have a singular focus. We have to have a vision. What are we called to accomplish? What is the thing that we are focused on? There must also be a diversity of participation. Hands, heads, hearts, arms, fingers, toes, knees, everybody has a role. But there must also be this, a great sense of interdependency. In other words, every part of the body recognizing how much it needs the other parts of the body. This is why the Bible refers to us as a body. We are at our best when we are in motion, not merely when we are in the mirror. So the church is not a building. It is also an army, or it is an army. It is what? Also a, a body. But the Bible also gives us this clear indication that the church is a family. Now, as we talk about family, 
It's not uncommon to walk around a church and hear people using family-esque language, right? As a matter of fact, we aren't the only ones calling ourselves brother and sister. I mean, if you belong to a, the Teamsters, you belong to a labor union, they refer to themselves as brothers, sisters. If you belong to a fraternity or a sorority, you might hear the language of brother and sister. Uh, amongst people of shared ethnicity, there may, you may see the occasional handshake, fist bump, or some other type of gesture that recognizes, that's my brother, or that's my sister, right? There, there is, there is uh, if you are out of the country at some point and you come across what's clearly another American, you might, you know, be like, ah, you know, my fellow countrymen, this is my brother or my sister. So we have all the different ways and platforms in which uh, the idea and the language of brother and sister uh, 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 use this whole familial language. So many organizations, many things use this familial language, but what is it that sets the church apart in our utilization of this whole idea of brothers and sisters? Well, there is a book, and I can't read the entire book, but I'll tell you the story. I want to challenge you to read the book of Philemon if you have not, or Philemon, depending on where you're from, right? But the book of Philemon slash Philemon, right, is a, is a beautiful um, a demonstration of, a, a, but it's somewhat obscure. It's somewhat obscure, but there is some real detail around the idea of the church being family located in here. And I want to share something with you. So to give you the backdrop, so the book of Philemon is written by the Apostle Paul to Philemon, who has a church meeting in his home. In that church that meets in his home are several other saints, and Paul has met a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus that used to belong to Philemon. The two of them met in prison. Uh, Onesimus, the runaway slave, came to know Christ, and now Paul is sending a letter and Onesimus back and saying, I want you to receive Onesimus, not as a slave or as a servant, regardless of what he may have did while he was with you, but I want you to receive him as a brother. And so as we watch this go down, I want you to listen to and see if you can pick up on some of the very family-esque language that Paul is using to drive home his point. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister and Archippus, uh, fellow soldier, and the to the church that is at your house. Grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, and when I remember uh, you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and, and the faith that you have toward uh, the Lord and for all his saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother." because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. In other words, he is laying it on thick. You got, man, you're, you're sold out for Jesus. You got a church meeting at your crib. You got other brothers and sisters serving with you. You are a total, you are a beacon of light and a place of refreshment. So many of the brothers and sisters and fellow saints throughout the body. And in the very next paragraph, he says, you know what? I could pull rank as an, as an apostle and tell you to do this, but I want to appeal to you as a brother and ask you to do something for me. If there's anything that Onesimus owes you, lay it to my account. But I want you to receive him as a brother. What does this mean? When it comes to the church's use of familial language, yes, we have a shared location, as you can see is happening at Philemon's house. We have a shared love, as you can see is happening between uh, the fellow saints and obviously those that are very much like Philemon, no doubt, right? And he loves the saints indiscriminately, as it would appear. 
But there's also a sharing of life that must take place. The sharing of life is not just a sharing of location and love, but the sharing of life means that we share one another's plight. This is one of the distinctives of the body. The one another's over and over in the scripture call us to, to, to bear one another's burdens. And bearing one another's burdens does not mean just to give a nice look, a pat on the head and say, well, I'll pray for you. But we are being called in this moment, Paul is calling Philemon in this moment to take a man who by all accounts didn't just run over his dog in the driveway. It used to be his property. And he ran away and probably that runaway slave cost him a great deal of resources. But then on top of that, he's in prison with Paul. Who knows what the conditions are? So you're asking me to receive a convicted felon, runaway slave who owes me cash as my brother? That's what the gospel do, baby. We are a family. We are called to share not just location, love, and fun looks and language, but we are called to share in one another's plight. And sometimes the sharing of that plight demands a level of sacrifice, not just overlooking, because if Philemon just overlooks the indebtedness of Onesimus, he'll forever carry a grudge. But would you look at this? Why wouldn't of all the places that Paul would send Onesimus back to, why does he feel it necessary to send him back to the very place where he was once a bondservant? Because Paul recognizes that real gospel is where the rubber meets the road. And if Philemon wants to ensconce himself in the pages of scripture as a dude who's really about mission, here's where you're about to make your money, baby, in eternity. Can you receive a former slave as your brother? We are a family, we are a body, and we are an army. And that familial context is one that often will cause us to make the same kinds of sacrifices that Christ made for us. Now, we can't be anybody else's substitutionary savior. But what we are regularly called to do as saints is to model Christ as a family for one another by sometimes taking it on the chin in ways where we really feel like we should be the one getting compensated. Is this not the ethic of the cross? I mean, Jesus Christ did nothing to, to, to receive that. He did nothing to earn that. He did nothing to deserve that. But yet he chooses to bear the weight and the total cost of redemption and allowing us to be known as brothers and sisters, joint heirs and members of the body and sharing in being able to call on his father, our father. He dies on the cross to make that reality true. And so... The church is not a building. I hope by this point that you would almost feel a sense of insult by reducing the church to a building rather than an army, a body, and a family. I'm not gonna be jacking anybody up in the hallway. Hey man, I heard you refer to this as church. I won't be doing that, but man, I, I, I'm, I'm going there. I'm going there, it's like, Lord, I mean, I, I will, I, um, honey, what time do you think you will meet me at the Belvedere facility? <laughs> I mean, we're going to do something. We're going to find some new language, but I want to preserve that beautiful word, the ecclesia, the church. I want to reserve that for you and me and not this building. But I also want to reserve it for when you and me are at our best, on mission, in motion, and also sharing one another's plight, sharing life together. This is the nature of the church. As you hear this message, 
I hope what you also hear and feel is that in the church, the Lord really takes human purpose to its apex, its highest point. This is why we exist, to be in relationship with God as our Father and to know Christ as our joint heir or we are joint heirs with him and to know him as the, the captain of the Lord's army and to know him as the head of the body where he is leading every aspect of our lives and he is giving vitality to every aspect and direction to every aspect of our lives. When we are outside of Christ, life just becomes this continual hopscotch between jobs, passions, purchases, and an in number of things that we're trying to do to find a sense of value and purpose. When the highest possible purpose is to be redeemed, reclaimed, reconnected back to one's creator. And that is what the gospel does for us. It gives us the only pathway. God's pathway back to him through the person of Christ. And so as you begin to think through your lives and you feel kind of topsy-turvy and you're, you're, you're out of sorts and you're just like, man, why am I here and what am I doing? I, don't, I just feel disjointed. Man, I ask you, if you feel disjointed, what's your level of connection and participation with the body? If you feel out of sorts, hey, what's your level of delivery and execution on the mission? If you feel uh, 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 like, you, like you, your, your foundation is shaky, how, where are you in the mutual doctrine of the gospel? And maybe your answer to all those things is kind of like, I don't know, a big zero. And maybe that could be an indication that you don't know Jesus. It, you could be very familiar with churches as buildings if they were, but not the church as a body because you're not connected to the Christ. And I want to encourage you to get connected to the Christ if that's your space. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning thanking you and praise you for the nature of the church. Even as you teach the teacher, my heart is inspired, Lord God, provoked even. And I ask, oh God, that as you are meeting out faith and conviction, Lord God, according to your sovereign will, that those who know that they do not know you are being compelled to move towards you. And for those that know you, Lord God, but that have lived on the back row, so to speak, not that that's a bad place, but metaphorically speaking, Lord God, their participation has been somewhat obscure and disconnected. I pray, oh God, that you would move on those hearts as well. Search every single one of us wherever we have reduced the church to anything less than what you called it to be. Make us aware of it, that we would repent before you quickly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.